0: So let me uh, do a little self-confession here as I start this talk. Um, I'm going to self-confess, but first I want to ask you, have you ever been caught up in a trend? Now, be honest. Have you ever been caught up in a trend? Something gets trendy, and next thing you know, you're on the bandwagon. Anyone here? And I ask this question because self-confession is I'm one of those types of people that thinks they're above trends (laughs) or likes to think that they are. I'm totally not. But particularly when I was in high school, I never wanted to listen to music that other people did, or clothes that other people did. I listened to um, alternative music before there were alternative music radio stations um, or playlists, all right? Before it was a thing, I listened to alternative music um, because I didn't want to listen to what you listened to. Because if you listened to it, all of a sudden it wasn't as cool as it used to be. I like to be in on the know. I'm sort of what you call music stop, a snob. There's a little diagram that sort of illustrates this quite well. <laughs> and it didn't wasn't just with music, with clothes. In high school and I guess maybe throughout my life there's always been a part of me that wanted to express myself through what I wore. And and so if something became a trend, if super baggy became a trend. Now, I know, like, look at me now. These are kind of skinny, and I know skinny jeans are like a trend. So I'm telling you, I'm not above this. <laughs> but particularly in high school, I didn't dress like anybody else that I knew in my school. And, you know, and throughout my life, there have always been trends around footwear, like sandal-like footwear, not kind of sandally, kind of not, that some people wear with socks. <laughs> and It's accepted right? No judgment-free zone, for whatever reason, that trend, I'm just like, no, 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 no. I never, I never want to do that. So I see a diagram, Birkenstocks or Crocs. For me, the answer is no to both. <laughs> not because they're not fantastic, just because it's a trend, and I don't want to be trendy, right? I, and, but as much as I try to do this, I know that I'm just like everybody else, and I fall in line with a tons of tons and tons of trends. Like, for example... I remember there was a season when cargo pants were kind of a new thing. And I hated cargo pants. Maybe you hate cargo pants now. I know there's sort of this backlash against them, so I'm told. But, man, when they were getting popular, I was like, I don't want to wear cargo pants. Why do I need a giant pocket on the side of my pants? I'm never going to use those. Am i going to put something in there, put my wallet way down here, and i got to unbutton to get to it. No, that's stupid. Why do I want pockets on the side of my trousers? That's ridiculous. And then I remember this. Certain commercial came out, some of you can remember this, where all these young, hip, cool people were wearing cargo pants, (laughs) dancing to swing music, and they did this thing, when they jumped in the air, they would freeze it, and in Matrix style, zip around to the other side of them, and I was just like, oh, that is so cool, but it's cargo pants. I I don't want to wear cargo pants. No, I'm not going to, I couldn't get the image out of my head. In a week's time, I was at the Gap, put my money down. Buying a pair of cargo pants. It happens to all of us. No matter how we don't want to be trendy, sometimes we cop. And the, the sad thing is, when I was looking for this image of the gap swing thing, uh, I looked closely at the picture, and, like, only a third of the people in the commercial actually had cargo pants on. The rest of them just had, like, straight-legged, whatever kind of trousers they, you, they are. They had them, but they didn't even have cargo. But all I saw was, like, one or two people with cargo pants, and I got hooked. And I was just like everybody else. You know, even when, to show you how pervasive this is in my psyche, even when we were trying to pick out a name for our newborn son, I thought, oh, I want a different name. I don't want a name that everybody else has. So let me find a different name. And I I had two criteria. I didn't want it to be common. And I wanted you to be able to shorten it to a cool nickname. (laughs) These are my priorities (laughs) in naming. Because, you know, I want to be able to call my son something shorter that I find cool. I don't know. I just do. So, I'm not joking. Every name that I think, oh, that would be a cool name, the same week I'd find there'd be some list of the trendiest up and coming names and that name would be in the top five (laughs) again and again and again. So as cool as I want to think that I am, as different as I want to think I am, I am totally a creature of culture and trends and I'm no cooler than any, in fact, all of you are much cooler than I am. Let's just put it like that. You have your own ideas and things like that. I just get sucked along. Um, and so finally we decided on a name that we like, (laughs) go figure, this is a name that we like. Um, and, and so the only reason I mention all of this is because sometimes in culture things become trends or they can seem trendy and it can be popular to jump on the bandwagon without thinking. And sometimes uh, they can be really good things. (laughs) You know, um, it's really popular these days, at least in certain circles, and particularly in Philadelphia, I think, to care about the environment, right? It's, a, it's almost a trendy thing over the last decade or so in a new way. And if you do a quick search on the internet regarding Christianity and the environment, you'll find all sorts of websites that talk about things like creation care or stewardship. Those are basically... Uh, the ideas that God has given humanity the responsibility of caring for, protecting, and renewing the environment. And these websites uh, even indicate that environmental concerns are deep and dear to the heart of Jesus and and should be to to the heart of the church as well. But a common critique, however, is that for Christians maybe, and for wider culture, it's more of a trendy thing. Or maybe that Uh, Christians are particularly late to the game, or that those websites don't represent the true teachings of Christian scripture. And although there have been many influential thinkers and theologians over the years, people like um, St. Francis, Thomas Aquinas, Francis Schaeffer, who have written from this perspective, many of the most publicized Christian thinkers have not held that same point of view, You know, perhaps the most famous and often quoted Christian on this topic is a guy, you may not know his name, um, but you probably are familiar with a lot of his ideas, a gentleman named James Watt. And he was an outspoken Christian who served as the Secretary of the Interior in the early 80s. And he wrote an often quoted article for the Saturday Evening Post. And the title of the article was, Ours is the Earth. And that article and the others like it that he wrote, made it clear that his opinion was that the earth was, quote, merely a temporary way station on the road to eternal life. The earth was put here by the Lord for his people to subdue and use for profitable purposes on their way to the hereafter. And the question I want to ask today is what does the Bible or the biblical authors, really teach about the environment and our relationship to it. You know, as someone who's interested at putting Jesus in the center of my life, letting that shape everything that I do, letting it shape what I'm passionate about, I want to know what's trendy and actually what's the nitty-gritty, what's the -the rubber-hits-the-road part of this faith that I'm trying to live. And what do the scriptures have to say about that? Is James Watt, is he right? Are these websites just reinventing uh, the Christian scriptures to fit something that they think is trendy and popular in culture today? And so in this series, we're going to look at these ideas. What do the Christian scriptures actually teach about the nature of nature and our place on this planet? And I think that what we'll discover is actually something that will affect deeper places in our lives than you would expect. In fact, I think the message of the Bible is that the way God feels about his creation is central to his purposes and his purposes in the world and ours as well. That will affect everything from the purpose that you sense in life, to the purpose of life in a city. So let's look at that. I want to say this. If you consider yourself an environmentalist, or if you're skeptical of all the emphasis on, the, on environmental issues these days and in our culture, this series is one that you don't want to miss. And we're con- going to consider uh, what the Bible has to say about this. And today we're going to start by trying to get a handle on what God himself, as portrayed in Christian scriptures, thinks. Does that sound interesting? Now, let me just do a little bit of clarification here. I'm going to use this. When I refer to everything that exists, I'm going to call it creation uh, because there is there's an underlying value that I have and that we have as a community here that there actually is a creator uh, who, who created everything. Now, by using the term creation, I'm not using that to set up uh, When we say creation, there's no attempt to place ourselves in opposition to the primary narrative of modern science. Um, Evolution can be viewed by a lot of people as faith, for example, as an elegant mechanism built into the system of creation uh, by an ingenious God. So I feel like there's plenty of room here if you have a very traditional perspective on creation that is, for example, six-day literal... Some of you don't even know what that means. That's great. There's room for you in this series. That's not what we're talking about. If, however, you're a person, you're a scientist, and you see uh, God working through evolution to create all things, there's plenty of room for you here as well. This isn't about either of those things. By using the term creation, all we're saying is we believe in a maker and that there's this underlying foundation in the perspective that I'll be sharing with you that you don't have to agree with. That there's a creator, a maker, and therefore we're using the term creation. By using creation, we're not setting ourselves up against anything. Does that make sense? So just a little background there so you know uh, where we're coming from and who there's room for in this room, which is everybody. That make sense? All right, three observations. We're going to do a little survey of the Bible to try and figure out how the Bible portrays God and what he thinks about the environment. Um, and the first is this. The earth is God's. It's his. Psalm 24 puts it this way. it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now, what this means is that when Mr. Watt penned his famous title for his article, Ours is the Earth, he was wrong. He missed it. According to the scriptures, the earth does not belong to us. It belongs to God. In fact, The picture we get from scripture is not only do we not own the earth, but we're merely tenants. And that's the way humanity is described in relation to this planet and the cosmos. So when God, well, I don't know if we're actually, uh, it's not like I'm living on Ursa Minor or anything like that. But anyway, when God brings the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, he does so with this instruction. He says, uh, the land must not be sold permanently. There's a crazy idea because the land is mine, but you are aliens and tenants. This is when God's bringing the Israelites into the promised land. Interesting, huh? And not only does the earth belong to God, according to the scriptures, but God cares for creation. So Psalm 104 is a beautiful sort of example of this in poetic language. And throughout this psalm, the psalmist makes the point by painting this beautiful picture of how God provides for and sustains everything. So the psalmist writes this, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. All creatures look to you To give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So everything, the whole cycle, death to life, everything that renews the earth, everything that provides for everything living, this in poetic language, not scientific language, but poetic language says, look, it's God who's providing, he's sustaining, he's holding things together. Even the process of death, which leads to new life, he's involved in all of that. So God is not just the creator and the owner of the earth, but he's the sustainer of the earth, and he cares for all of its creatures and its features. Sustaining the earth is important to him. You can see that in the language we see here. And more than that, and this I think is key for us, is that creation is good apart from us. Not good despite us. (laughs) Good apart from us. And here's here's what I mean. Good with or without us. I want to read you sort of a condensed version of the first chapter of Genesis, which is beautiful. You should read the whole thing. But it's quite long, so I just want to give you some highlights. Uh, This is Genesis 1, parts of verses 3 to 5. It's a story of creation told in poetic language. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God God saw that the light was good. And God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters. He called them seas. And God saw that it was good. The land produced vegetation and God saw that it was good. God made two great lights. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And God saw that it was good. God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing which the water with which the water teems and every winged bird and God saw that it was good. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that moved along the ground, and God saw Say it with me, that it was good. 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 Good, good. 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 Six times in the first 25 verses of the Bible, the chorus of Genesis resounds this theme again and again, God saw that it was good. And this, and what I want us to notice is this is before the author of Genesis mentions anything about the creation of humanity. In fact, in the language of days, it's the next day that humanity is created, the sixth day. But through the first five days, everything's good. Good, 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 good. Before the creation of humanity. In other words, creation is good on its own. Apart from any relationship, any relationship with humanity. I read a book called Redeeming Creation by Fred Van Dyke. And he puts it this way. He says, human beings are not created until the pronouncements are complete. Arriving as the last act of a nearly finished work. They are not asked to applaud, evaluate, or critique. Their own opinion about creation's goodness is not considered and not solicited. The judgment has already been made. The valuation already declared. The only judge who really matters. Creation is good in general and in particular, and its value exists because its creator exists. It has its own value, apart from its usefulness or lack of usefulness to humanity. Do you notice that? This theme is approached from another angle in the book of Job. Job's a complicated book. It's probably worth like four or five week sermon series. I think I did that once. Um, but in it, if you know the story at all, Job has had a really hard time. Um, he's angry and he expresses that to God. Now, what do you think about that whole situation? It's another sermon, but there's something about the way God responds that communicates about the nature of creation. So when Job is questioning God, and God comes back with him basically with an argument uh, that God understands how the world works and what's happening even better than Job, uh, this is one of the examples he uses. This is from the 40th chapter. God says, look at the behemoth. Now the behemoth, we don't use that word anymore. I wish we did though, because it's so cool. But scholars think that's probably hippopotamus, maybe an elephant. Um, Sort of, I don't know why we don't use that term anymore, but I think next time you go to the zoo, check out that behemoth. That would be awesome. But anyway, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on the grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. Now, the point here is that God's creation of the behemoth shows how much more amazing or how far above God is as compared to Job. It's as if the behemoth shows the glory of God to Job and to the rest of the world. And the passage speaks of it in ways that reflect the value that it has in relation to God, but makes no mention of its value in relation to humanity, to us. Now, here's the point I'm making. I like the way Calvin DeWitt puts it. He says, in this view, a human being does not first ask concerning the hippo, can I eat it? Can I shoot it? Can I market it? Can I get it out of my way? Instead, the questions are, what does the creator think of this creature? How in my relationship to it should I honor its owner? It displays the glory of God first. Now, what we're doing here, the reason I'm bringing up these things, we're taking a little survey to build sort of a core biblical understanding of creation because this is a big question in our culture today. And Christianity has a very bad reputation when it comes to caring for the environment. So what does God think? I'm not so bold as to say I can tell you exactly what God thinks. That would be crazy because I can't. But I think we can see here a core biblical understanding of creation that says this. Creation has innate value in God. Creation does not just exist for us to conquer and use to our own benefit. It has value on its own because it's owned, cared for, and declared good by God himself. In other words, creation has innate value because God values creation. God is green. It's hard to read the Bible and not come away with that conclusion So with that in mind, what does that mean for us? And we're going to quickly look at three implications that I think will help set us off for the rest of the series. And we'll talk, there's a lot more to talk about. We've got two more weeks to do this, and there's a lot more controversial things that have happened, so we'll get to some of those. But three implications of this, what I'm calling God-centered understanding. The first is that it provides everyday motivation for creation, care. What, What do I mean by everyday? Well, as I've read on this topic over the years, it seems like there are two main arguments that people make about why we should care for creation, which are good arguments, which are helpful, but I think sometimes fall a little bit short. Uh, one is what I'll call the user satisfaction model. And what I mean by that is, um, it's the thought, isn't, aren't the rivers beautiful? Wouldn't it be terrible if they were all polluted and we couldn't enjoy them as we float down them? We better save some national national forest because if you've ever been to one, you know how beautiful it is and what a joy it is to participate in nature in that way, to camp, to do whatever you want, to enjoy nature, right? User satisfaction. If we don't take care of it, it won't be there, right? That's user satisfaction. Helpful. You know, I just got back from Durango, Colorado. I'd hate to see some of those mountains destroyed or the rivers that we were uh, floating down uh, become polluted. Um, helpful in so many ways. Another most common, I think, approach is the personal health risk approach to caring for creation, which means this if we don't take care of this, we're all gonna die. <laughs> right? So, I mean, and there's some value to this perspective. Yes, no one wants to die, uh, no one wants our kids to die, right? So, um, I, who can forget a few years ago where there was a, a report, I think, in the Daily News about Uh, um, scientists and ecologists finding traces of pharmaceuticals in our drinking water, right? That's scary. That'll motivate you to clean up the water, right? To do something different, uh, to pass laws for the pharmaceutical companies to care for and dispose of whatever they're doing uh, in different ways, right? Uh, Climate change. Big push. Hey, if we don't do something about this, uh, seawater levels are going to rise, and eventually we're all going to die, or there are going to be cat- catastrophic uh, things and storms and all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Um, we want to breathe clean air. Every once in a while you hear a report about smog overtaking a city and people actually dying or having to go underground. So this is a very powerful argument. There's a lot of value to it. It's this personal health risk approach. And they're important factors, they need to be known, taken into consideration, but let me suggest that they also might be limited in their effect, because basically, they only play out when you're in a crisis, right? When you're about to lose the beautiful forest that you're enjoying, Uh, when you're afraid that your children are going to die because temperatures keep rising, and you're going to you know, lose the beach because of the rising, everything, right? But they're crisis-oriented. Arthur Wendell Berry writes this. He writes, the mentality of conservation is divided, and disaster is is implicit in its division. I'm sorry if it's a little heady, but he goes on, he says, it is divided between its intentional protection of some aspects of the environment and its inadvertent destruction of others. It's variously either vacation-oriented or crisis-oriented, and for the most part, it's not yet sensitive to the impact of daily living upon the sources of daily life. And what I'm taking this to mean is that if we put humans at the center of our concern for creation, we'll only really pay attention when it comes to our own recreational lives or pending environmental doom. In other words, this type of approach will have limited effect in an ongoing, everyday, long-term, lifestyle choices sort of way. What I'm saying is when the crisis is over, nobody cares. Right? If you survive it. How do you keep from getting to the crisis? You know, the beautiful forest you enjoy is gone. Ah! Ah! Or you protect it, yay! But nothing else changes, and 10 years it's threatened again, or somewhere else is threatened. It's just, how do you keep from getting there? And what I'm suggesting is this, when push comes to shove, if it's all about us, we may choose the easy way out, we may ignore opportunities to invest, or simply just take the attitude of letting tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Caring about the environment only as it pertains to myself or humanity in general, is different from having a worldview that places innate value or value that exists outside of me and you in creation. And I think what these commentators are suggesting is needed is a perspective, an approach to life, a philosophical value, an ethos, a way of living that is motivated by something else. And what I think that thing is is this God-centered view that creation has value apart from us and is worth investing in. And I think that can motivate a different day-to-day life before the crises has come and maybe be preventative. And here's two ways I see that. Motivation happening. First, I think a God-centered perspective provides an everyday connection to God. So a motivation, and this is part of the motivation, and that is everyday connection to God. All right, I'm going to do a little test for you. If you can guess this, coffee is on me, okay? I owe you, all right? I have a lot of different television programs that are sort of my favorites, but there's one I'm thinking of, okay? If you can name that, you win. All right, what do you think is one of my favorite television series? Let's hear them. Breaking Bad. Yes. What are my favorite one? Not what I'm going for. No coffee for you. Who else? What? Walking Dead. Yes, I love that show too. Not what I'm looking for, although definitely post-apocalyptic, although it has nothing to do necessarily with the environment. Anyways, you lose. Well, who's next? House of Cards. Used to be a fan, sort of trailed off. Who else? Parks and Rec, good show, good show. This show's still on TV. What? Game of Thrones, never seen it. Sorry, guys. Don't hate me. What other shows do you think might be my favorite? Come on. This side has said nothing. Oh, she did say Walking Dead. She's right, I'm wrong. How about this side? The what? The news. (laughs) The news. Not not what I was thinking of. Should I just tell you? Any last guesses? Veep's funny. Not what I'm thinking of. All right. The show I'm thinking of, I'm sure, was the next one you're going to say. Project Runway? (laughs) Is that what you're thinking of? Now, you might might not be surprised at all, but many of you might be just a little bit surprised by that. And you could think to yourself, how did Brad end up watching and liking Project Runway? Well, there is a story to that. Someone that I know really loves fashion and really likes this show and has been watching it for years. That's three guesses. No. (laughs) So I started watching it with her and caring about it with her and found, oh my gosh, this is kind of a way for us to connect. I'm talking, of course, about Becca, my wife. (laughs) She likes fashion. And enjoys watching the design process, however edited it may be. And so she watches Project One Way. I started watching Project One Way. And all of a sudden, we could talk about which garments we really liked. Why I don't like that cut or that silhouette. Did I know the term silhouette five years ago? No, I did not. (laughs) I can talk about a silhouette. Um, I can talk about all kinds of crazy stuff, right? We can talk with the designers we prefer and we don't, who we hope wins, how that person shouldn't have been kicked off. Is it the deepest connection in the world? Probably not, but it's fun and it's a connection. It's another thing that Becca and I can relate over. And I think, in a more profound, probably in a deeper way, we can connect to God and His heart when we care about the things He cares about. You know, I think. We often think in these terms when it comes to other areas of life that God is known to care about. So, when you think about the stories of the lost sheep or the lost coin, or the good shepherd who goes out and finds the one who's on the fringe and embraces that person, that sheep, that lost coin, brings them into the community. And we think, yes, we want to be a community. I want to have a life where I'm including people that would often not be included. And man, I've experienced something here that's amazing. I would love to share. And so we think God cares about this. I want to care about this. I want my heart to line up with his. We think about it, when it ter- in terms of justice for the oppressed. All these Bible verses about God caring for the least and standing against the proud and the oppressor. And so we think, yes, I want my heart to line up with God's heart. And we connect through that. We want to be involved in ways that we are standing up for the marginalized or we are standing up for justice. We care about watching for children. There's these Bible verses about, let the children come to me, don't hinder them. There's this Bible verse about, it'd be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into a deep ocean than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so we want our heart for children to line up with the heart of God. And we connect to God through that. His creation is another one of those opportunities. Caring for what has been made. Renewing what has been made, investing in the world around us is another opportunity to connect to God, to know God, to experience God. So a God-centered approach to creation or the environment provides an extra motivation in everyday life, and part of that is an opportunity to connect with the Creator And the third implication is this, God-centered understanding of creation provides a means for everyday worship. Now, if you're on the front end of figuring faith out, maybe this is an immediate draw for you. But connecting to God in this way, I think, can be particularly powerful. So to value what God values is to value Him. And if God says something is good and we agree, it's like shouting, Amen. Amen. It's a moment of worship. Not only that, but a theme of the Bible is that creation itself worships God by declaring His glory. So Psalm 19 is an example. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth their speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the world. Their are words to the ends of the world. I think what this means is that to protect, to preserve, to renew creation, is, it's not only a way to worship God, but it's also a way to facilitate creation's ability to declare the glory of God. And in this way, every person in this room can be a worship leader. Not with a musical instrument, but with your life, with the choices that you make. You know, one of my oldest and best friends is my acting teacher from my student days. And he was someone who had grown up with some faith, but I think had been mistreated quite a bit. And by the time I knew him, would probably consider himself, I hate to put words in those, but more of an agnostic, not quite sure, maybe an atheist. But I remember (laughs) walking out of class with him one day And it was, there was this beautiful sunset just setting over the campus we were on. And he just says, every time I see that, I can't help but say, thank you, God. The heavens declare the glory of God. They lead a chorus of worship. So where do we go from here? Now, you might expect me to have like, oh, here's like 10 things that you can do this week. Practical things, because one of the things we say about our church, practical, practical inclusive, Jesus-centered. But I don't want to start there this week. We're going to get to very practical things in the next couple weeks, but we don't want to miss something really important that I think is the bigger theme here. Let me suggest the first thing that we need is what I'm sort of calling this mystical awareness of the value of creation. Something that gets down into us. That is a motivation for us. That's what we're talking about, having a greater motivation. Something that isn't just crisis-oriented, although that's important, but can affect our day-to-day lives when we don't see a crisis. Something that will motivate us in a way that self-interest on its own, as powerful as it is, cannot. And so what I would suggest... We just, last time I talked about the environment, I think we were moving into the winter months. It was a a long time ago. We're not this time. It's the summer. It's the best time to experience a bit of nature. So I would say this, get out and experience nature. That's probably the most important thing you can do to kick this time that we have together off. Have you ever heard of Fairmont Park? It's the largest nature reserve in any U.S. city, and it's right here in Philly. Hike it. Find a place to sit and meditate or pray. Swim the gorge. Whatever. You know, watch a documentary on nature. You can watch those and they'll blow your mind. It can be about any aspect of nature, from the planets and the stars and the solar systems to how insects Procreate. It's amazing, right? Like, there's so many things. The deep blue sea, shark week, watch it, whatever it is. Visit the aquarium across the river. Be amazed. You know, I, I had a, I, a little bit of a cheat last week. I was out of town, if you know that. I was in Durango, Colorado. So it was a little bit of a cheat. And I got to do things like uh, rafting down the Animas River. That was awesome. There's a picture of me doing it. I swear I'm actually in that boat. It's kind of far away. Um, it was wonderful. It was really cold because the water had just melted from snowbanks up in the mountains. It was totally cold, but it was totally exhilarating. And there were moments of thrills, of giant rapids, and just peaceful moments of floating and taking in the scenery mountains, ridges. The best thing about it, though, the most amazing thing I did was drive through Glenwood Canyon. Have any of you done this? It's a canyon that is actually a highway that runs through, and you go along uh, a river all the way through it, and these pictures don't do it justice. I couldn't take my own <laughs> because I might be dead now. Um, driving off the road, it's hard to take photos and drive, but I drove through this pass, it, it, and it's sort of washed out because, you know, it's, there's daylight and everything. It's amazing. It connects you to something bigger. Let me ask you, anyone here had a stressful week? Anybody? Ever? Okay. You raised your hand. You didn't really have to. It was kind of, it was just asking, but thank you. I appreciate that. Um, There's more and more research that's showing that viewing or listening to the sounds of nature naturally brings the stress levels down in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we can't go on a field trip right now. That would be the best. Uh, We can't really do that. Um, But I can bring some of the sights and the sounds of nature to you in a little bit of an artificial form, but studies show it still makes a difference. So to jumpstart this process of stoking your sense of mystical awareness, I want to try something different today. If you can turn down the lights... I can't take you to Fairmont Park right now. Uh, It would take too long. Uh, You lose interest by the time we, anyway. So what I want to do is try something different. I've never done this before. I have this clip that I found, and we're going to take some time and watch and listen to a clip. And as you do, I want you to sort of go with me on this and ask God to meet you in this space that we have provided through the sights and the sounds of nature. Someone's laughing at me. But I'm telling you, let's try this. Ask him to calm your heart and speak to you. And after you do that, just be. I don't want you to try to do anything else. Just be quiet and breathe. Can you do that? Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to let this play for a while. I'm probably going to let it play for an awkwardly long amount of time. So just be prepared. So that you can relax. And for some of you, this is going to be really refreshing. For some of you, you're going to be like, why did we do that? That's okay. All right? You guys with me? So here's what I'm going to do. If you can start, go ahead and start at Magda. I'm going to be quiet a moment, but I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to fall asleep. (laughs) So, God, um, we join with a chorus that says the earth is yours. And that you sustain all things. You sustain us. And so we welcome you into this time of reflection and ask, Spirit, that you'd be here in this. So invite God if you would, welcome his presence if you would, and then just be. And I'll wrap our time up in a bit. Now we're about a minute in. Some of you just want to take a deep breath in through your nose, hold it, and then breathe right back out. In spirit, we pray that you cultivate in us a mystical awareness of the value of all of the creation that's around us, that it could be a way for us to connect to you and shape the way we live. Amen. So that was about three minutes. I don't want to push you guys any farther than that. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, I already feel lighter. <laughs> um, it's amazing what just the sounds and sights of nature can do to our souls. And if you invite the presence of God into that experience, uh, it can go up to a whole nother level. For some of you, you might even, you have a stressful job, three minutes alone in your office or in your cube with your earbuds in. Doing this might be just what you need to reconnect, uh, to push off um, some of the negative effects of what you're feeling of just living in this life or disappointments at work or whatever. Um, But being in nature can be even more powerful. So that's just a taste, one thing that you can do, um, but the prayer is that it connects us to something bigger.